Good evening. I hope you're all doing well. We have been going through an overview of the Christian faith, which began a couple weeks ago. And in that time, we've looked at what Scripture is and how we've come to receive various translations that we have today. We also looked at the different uh, Christian denominations, including their history and different beliefs and practices. Uh, and I was really uh, excited to hear a lot of the feedback and excitement that many of y'all have had uh, with this series uh, since we began, and I hope that it'll continue to be a blessing to each and every one of you. Uh, this evening, what we're going to be doing is we're going to spend some time uh, looking at the major doctrines or beliefs of the Christian faith. Now, it should be noted that there are countless doctrines and all different types of small categories and nuances of beliefs uh, that we could spend weeks, maybe even months, uh, trying to comb through. Uh, but the goal of this series is to give an overview of the faith that will be helpful to people who are curious about Christianity, as well as uh, be beneficial to those who have been Christian uh, Christians for years. And so we're not going to get into all the various doctrines that we could cover, but mainly just focus on some of the more popular ones and some of the ones that are, are central or, or core to the Christian faith. Now, we have a lot to cover tonight, and honestly, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get to all of it. We're going to try, uh, but if not, uh, we'll get uh, we'll finish up the rest of it next week. But what I'm hoping to do uh, is to kind of just take a moment, real quick, and just to discuss uh, what why it's important for us to discuss uh, the core beliefs of Christianity. Now, I know that there are some who look at all the various Christian denominations and they think that even Christianity can't agree on what to believe because there's just so many different denominations. There's so many different nuances of what various Christians believe. So what's the point of even talking about Christian doctrine? But the reality is that while there are a lot of denominations that differ on some second and third tier beliefs, uh, kind of like what we mentioned last week uh, when we talked about denominations, the, the truth is nearly all Christians agree on the core doctrines of the Christian faith, which we're going to be kind of uh, talking about tonight. So these doctrines are important to know because they are the bedrock of the Christian faith and of the Christian worldview. They really help solidify how we see uh, God, how we see ourselves, and how we see the world around us as Christians. Now, if we're not grounded in these truths that we're about to talk about, then it's very likely uh, that we're going to become confused, that we're going to end up uh, falling away from what God's Word actually teaches, and uh, it's just going to wreak havoc on the church and on individual Christian lives. So I believe that this is probably one of the uh, more important uh, uh, parts of this uh, series that we're going to be covering. So I hope that uh, we'll be able to spend a sufficient amount of time to really uh, dive deep into uh, some of these uh, various doctrines that we're going to be touching on. So while there are many ways to approach a study on the various Christian doctrines, we're going to look at the top seven doctrines, beginning with the doctrine of divine revelation. Now, we're starting with this particular belief because all the other doctrines that we're going to be talking about kind of flow out of this one. Without God revealing uh, himself to us, we wouldn't know who he is much less anything else that our faith teaches. So, in talking about divine revelation, we're going to be talking about how God communicates to mankind. Uh, now, when discussing this doctrine, we need to make a distinction between general revelation and special revelation. 
general revelation is the general revelation or communication that God gives to all mankind broadly. This is something that uh, is communicated to all people at all times and all places. Examples of this would be like the moral law of God that's written on uh, the human heart. Uh, that's also kind of referred to more popularly as our conscience. Now, while there is um, morality that is specific to certain cultures and times, there are other morals that are seen in every culture throughout human history that serves as evidence that there are certain ideas of what is right and what is wrong, that God has put in place in every human heart. Um, now, there are people who uh, try to ignore uh, this moral law written on our heart, and I believe that you can rebel so much against God uh, to the point to where your heart is uh, hardened, or as some people would say, it is seared, like with a branding iron, it's seared or hardened to where you don't feel the, the prick of uh, the Holy Spirit as he speaks to your heart and he convicts you of certain things. You can get so far away from God where you don't you don't recognize or even feel your conscience warn you of when you're getting into wrong. But every person, when they're born, is given this general revelation of who God is and what right and wrong is. Now, another example of this general revelation is how God reveals himself in nature. Uh, you can look around at uh, the night sky. You can see uh, the beautiful works of nature. Um, and you can just see God's handiwork all around you. You cannot look out at the world that's been created and come to a belief in atheism. Okay, uh, That is something that has to be taught by those who don't want to believe that they're accountable uh, to their creator. All creation bears witness that there is an intelligent mind behind all of that we see out in the world. In fact, we see that the Apostle Paul mentions... Uh, both these examples of general revelation, our conscience, as well as the law that we see uh, in nature, God's revelation in nature, we see this in Romans chapter 1. It says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, even here Paul says that they have the truth uh, all around them. They have the truth on their hearts, but they suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Here's this next part. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Here, Paul is telling us in no uncertain terms that God has given manifold witness uh, to himself in nature around us and in the moral law that's written on our heart. This is God's general revelation to all people at all times. The idea of general revelation lets us know that when mankind stands before God, no one will be able to uh, use the excuse that they did not know that there was a God or that they did not know what right and wrong was okay at least the bare basics of what is right and wrong now the other kinds of revelation uh, the other kind of revelation is what is called special revelation now this would be as as its name kind of suggests a more specific and special revelation by god that is not necessarily experienced by all of mankind examples of this would include visions uh, divine dreams uh, but most often it refers to Scripture itself. Now, the Bible is a collection of divinely inspired prophecies, 
visions, dreams, and revelations by God to mankind to reveal himself to all of us. Now, it gives us a greater and more detailed idea of who God is and what his will for us is. Now, Paul told Timothy in one of his letters to Timothy, it says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In fact, that word means to uh, be God-breathed. It's like a scripture is as if it came straight out of the mouth of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that uh, the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it should be noted that, uh, that Christians believe that because Scripture is inspired by God, it is inerrant, uh, which means it is without error or mistakes, and it is infallible, which means it will never lie to you or lead you astray. We mentioned this a little bit in the first part of the series, but we need to come back around to this now as we talk about uh, God's revelation to mankind. Now, it must be noted that, um, that though this applies only to the original manuscripts, uh, um, by that I mean that when uh, the prophets and when the apostles originally wrote the letters, uh, those were uh, infallible and they were inerrant. It doesn't necessarily always, uh, by default, translate into our translations. What I mean by that is this. Um, when Scripture was first written by Moses, uh, by Daniel, by Jeremiah, by Peter and Paul, it was without error. However, as it was copied over and over and over again throughout the centuries, it is true that those who copied it at times made small errors or mistakes, uh, maybe in spelling and various things like that. Now, only the original manuscripts are considered to be inerrant and infallible. And the copies that we have today are considered to be inerrant and uh, infallible only as they, uh, only to the degree that they uh accurately reflect the original manuscripts that were written. Now, thankfully, due to archaeology and research and God's overall providence, most of the current translations uh, that we have today are very reliable and trustworthy copies of God's Word. All right, And so your copy of God's Word uh, is, uh, should be considered inerrant and infallible because to a very, very high degree, they reflect what the original manuscripts uh, wrote. Now, uh, all of this uh, is, is just an overview of divine revelation. This shows us, this is the Christian belief that God has spoken. He has revealed himself to all mankind because he wants us to know who he is. He wants to be in our relationship with us. And so he has shown himself in the world. He's shown himself in the moral law written in our heart. And he's shown us uh, himself most clearly in scripture itself. Now, next, I would like for us to consider the doctrine of, of God himself. Now that we've covered divine revelation, uh, let's turn our attention to who God is and what he's revealed about himself. Like, uh, now most uh, doctrines, uh, we could spend uh, most, uh, we could spend most of our time, we could spend weeks and months endlessly chasing rabbit tails on this doctrine of who God is, because there's so many nuances and so many different things to cover. But this, this evening, I want to specifically focus on what is, I believe, one of the most unique uh, doctrines within the Christian faith that kind of separates us uh, from many other uh, religions, and that is the belief in a triune God, a God who is Trinity, three in one. Now, one of the Christian teachings 
of God that is specific to Christianity is this idea that uh, there's one God and only one God, but that that God is composed of three unique individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one is fully God, and uh, each one uh, makes up the one tr uh, true triune God. Now, it is understandable that this is a very difficult belief uh, for many people to hold. Uh, after all, how can there be one God and yet three gods that are com that comprise this one God? Now, just trying to describe that can leave you kind of exhausted and confused. Uh, many people, in fact, have left Christianity to start their own religions in part because uh, they struggled with this idea of the triune God. Examples of this are uh, the Mormons with jo uh, Joseph Smith and Jehovah's Witness. Uh, both of those religions uh, really struggled with this idea of the triune God, and because of that, they broke off uh, from Christianity. Now, some have tried to explain this doctrine by saying that, well, there's one God, uh, but he manifests or shows himself in three different ways. Uh, those who take this position or try to explain the triune God in this way say that God revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament. Then he re revealed himself as the Son in the New Testament, and now he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. Now, as appealing as this may sound, uh, it's actually an ancient heresy uh, that the early church fought against called modalism. Now, a casual, uh, a casual look at Scripture will show that this explanation of the Trinity actually goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, without getting into all the various passages of Scripture that teach uh, the Trinity, I'm simply just going to point you to one example in the life of Jesus that really illustrates uh, the truth that we worship one God who uh, is seen in three distinct individuals. And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. It says this, When he, talking about Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, in this one moment in Jesus' life, we see all three members of the Trinity at one time. There's the Son who is being baptized. There's the Holy Spirit that's descending uh, like a dove on the Son. And then there's the Father declaring, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, not to mention that Jesus also prays on numerous occasions to the Father. So unless uh, there is a Trinity, uh, there was no Father and Jesus was merely praying to himself. So there has to be a Trinity. We see it clearly all three of them present in Jesus' baptism. We see that Jesus was obviously praying to someone. Uh, and so there had to have been someone he was praying to, and that's the Father. Uh, we see time and time again examples in Scripture that God is three persons in one. Again, I understand uh, that this is a very difficult uh, doctrine for a lot of people to kind of get their arms around. And so I, if, um, if you're interested in this and you really want to uh, know more and learn more about the Trinity, uh, I've recently finished a wonderful book that um, it's not too academic, but it explains the doctrine of, Trini of the Trinity better than anything else I've read. And it's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. He goes in detail, but it's um, very understandable, and it really uh, helped me uh, have a greater appreciation and understanding of uh, what the Trinity is and why it's so important 
uh, to the Christian faith. Now, uh, now that we've uh, covered a divine revelation, we've covered the doctrine of God, let's turn our attention to the doctrine of mankind. Now, all religions try to explain what has gone wrong with humanity uh, in their various ways. Now, in the Christian faith, we teach that, uh, that humanity was originally created perfect uh, in the image of God. Uh, this creation is described in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, unfortunately, this did not last very long. This, uh, this time of human perfection created in the image of God, it did not last very long. Because in Genesis 3, we see that, uh, that this couple from which all the rest of humanity came from was led to sin. Uh, this not only corrupted them, but it also polluted all their descendants with this inclination to sin and to rebel against God, uh, rebel against God which is where humanity's innate depravity comes from. This is why all people end up running from God, end up hurting themselves, hurting others, and basically just wrecking God's creation. Uh, now, this doctrine is key not only in understanding why people do sinful things, but also why people can't save themselves. People are not sinful because they sin. Now, understand me very clearly, and there, there's a little bit of a nuance here, but this is important. People are not sinful because they sin. Rather, they sin because they're sinful. Because of that, um, that um, root of sin in our hearts, that is, uh, that is why we sin. It's the outflow of what's going on in our heart. We're not sinful because we do bad things. We do those bad things because in our hearts, we're infected with this disease called sin that drives us to rebel against God. And that's why we're all born uh, uh, sinful and that's why we need a Savior who will come and give us a new nature, a new heart. Uh, and that's where the, uh, the doctrine of Christ and of salvation comes from. So, the doctrine of Christ teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, who is fully man and fully God. He existed with God before the creation of the world, and he came uh, to be born as a human through the Virgin Mary so that he could live a sinless life and die for the sins of mankind. Now, this is another doctrine that many have struggled with, namely that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, some have suggested that he was just all God and he simply looked like a man. Now, others believe that he's simply a man who was just a great prophet or a great teacher. But Christianity uh, teaches that he was 100% God and 100% man. Now, I want to tell you why this is important to uh, hold to the idea that Jesus is uh, fully God and fully man. And that's because if he was not fully man, if Jesus was not 100% man, just like you, uh, just like me, then he cannot be a substitute or representative for mankind. And so his death would not bring salvation to us. We needed a, a person who would represent us before God, who could be sinless and, and die for our sins, represent us just like Adam represented us. Likewise, if he's not fully God, then not only uh, would uh, not only would he be marred by sin, he would inherit sin just like the rest of us, but also he would be unable to live a sinless life. Uh, so therefore, 
Um, he wouldn't be able to take away the sins of the world. So he has to be fully God and he has to be fully man to be able to represent us, to remain sinless and to bring salvation uh, to each and every one of us. Now, another important aspect of this Christian doctrine of Christ is the importance of his death and his resurrection. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that we as Christians believe allows God to forgive us of our sins and to gain access into his presence. Now, Jesus, who is perfect, uh, who's perfect and sinless, took the sins of all the world, everyone who's ever existed and ever will exist, and, uh, and ever uh, will exist, and took the punishment that we all deserve so that God would punish him and forgive us. Now, to many, this sounds a, a little unjust, because in their minds, they, they ask, well, how can God punish an innocent person just so that he can forgive the guilty people? Now, the way the New Testament writers explain this doctrine is by comparing it to debt. Uh, they would say, we owed a debt that we could never repay. So Jesus paid that debt so that we could be free from it. And that's kind of the illustration that the writers uh, of the New Testament give to explain this doctrine of uh, substitutionary atonement. That's kind of the, the fancy theological uh, phrase for that. Now, closely linked to the doctrine of Christ is the doctrine of salvation. Now, I make this the distinction here between the doctrine of Christ and doctrine of salvation because it needs to be emphasized that Christianity makes a big deal regarding salvation by grace through faith and not of works. This is really important. Uh, this means that the uh, the work of Jesus was accomplished through his death and resurrection, and was an act of grace. Grace is an unmerited gift that I don't deserve. I didn't do anything for it, but God just gives it because he loves us. Now, that means that we don't deserve it. We never could earn it, uh, but God gives it to us through Christ Jesus. So, and in the same way, um, and in this gift of salvation is applied to in individuals, uh, not based on works that they've done or, or anything else, but it's solely based on, on faith. Uh, that means that there's no amount of good things that you or I can do to earn this salvation that is offered by Christ. There are some people who say, well, uh, when I get to heaven, hopefully I will have uh, done enough good things to kind of uh, balance out or outweigh the bad things I've done in this life. Listen, there's no amount of good things that you can do that are going to outweigh the bad things. It's just, that's not how it works. Uh, God has re revealed to us that that's not how it works. So we um, we believe as Christians in salvation by grace through faith. The requirement that we must meet uh, is that we believe uh, in who Christ is and what he's done and choose to accept the free gift of salvation that he offers to us. That's the only thing uh, that God requires from us. Now, this is taught uh, in, in many different passages of Scripture, but one uh, clear case of this is Ephesians 2, verse 8 uh, and 9 says this, For you are saved. By grace, that's the free gift, through faith, that's how God applies it, and this is not from yourself. It is a, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. When everyone uh, who's ever saved stands before God, no one's going to be able to say, well, I got here because I was just good enough and I just did enough good things. It's all based on what Christ has done. Now, this is another critical doctrine that separates Christianity from nearly every other religion in the world. Every other religion tells you that what you need to do in order to uh, be right with God and to go to heaven uh, it, uh, is to do uh, this work and this work and do enough good things. But Christianity says all you got to do is accept 
Christ Jesus and the gift that he offers to each and every one of us. So uh, it should also be noted that Christianity teaches that if you have been saved, uh, I'm sorry, that you have been saved the moment you've accepted Christ, you are being saved each and every moment that Christ, uh, you are, that God sanctifies you to look more and more uh, like Christ Jesus. And one day you uh, will be saved when you stand before the judgment seat of God. So we have been saved in the past. We are being saved in the present uh, as God sanctifies us. And we will be saved one day when we stand before God uh, and he says, uh, "You've your sins have been paid for. Uh, now enter into uh, your reward, uh, which is eternal life with him. Now, the next doctrine that we're going to look at is the doctrine of the church. Now, Christianity teaches that the church uh, that we see, uh, the local church, is not necessarily the true church. Uh, in any local church, there are likely to be some who claim to be Christian, but actually are not. The church is not the building. The church are the believers that comprise the local body of believers. The true church is only known by God, and one day he will reveal the true church at the judgment seat of God when he uh, sifts the tares from the wheat, uh, those true believers from those uh, who are just falsely claiming to trust Christ. Now, this true church is made up only of true believers, those who have trusted Christ and are committed to following him in an eternal relationship. Now, numerous times in scripture, they are referred to as the body of Christ because they're united with him. Uh, they're also referred to as the family of God because they've been adopted into the family of God uh, uh, through our faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, it is also uh, the teaching of our faith that the church is called to be on mission uh, to share the gospel with the world around us. Instead of God sending out angels to tell the gospel, or instead of him just uh, tearing the sky apart and, and stepping down and saying, here I am, he has sent us transformed uh, sinners who are now following him to go out and share this uh, good news uh, of Christ Jesus with those who need to hear it. Now, this is something that every Christian is responsible to do until Christ returns. And to help accomplish this, Scripture teaches that God has given the church and each and every believer that makes up the church various gifts and abilities to help carry out the mission. Uh, these are all to be used to bring God glory and to uh, help spread the word of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. Now, lastly, uh, we're going to uh, consider the Christian doctrine of eschatology, or the end times. Now, this is a very popular and controversial uh, topic uh, that has captured the attention and the imagination of countless people throughout uh, church history. This particular doctrine teaches that Christ will uh, one day return to this earth to bring about the kingdom of God. It also teaches that there will be a time of great chaos and confusion and sinfulness, often referred to as the Great Tribulation, which means the great hardship or testing. Uh, after this time of testing and hardship, Scripture teaches that there will be a thousand years where Christ is reigning and ruling here on this earth, and that will culminate in the great judgment where everyone will be judged to see whether they will enter into eternity with Christ or whether or not they will be separated from God Forever. And again, that's based on their acceptance of Christ Jesus and the free gift of salvation uh, that he offers each and every one of us. When all that is said and done, God will then make a new heaven and a new earth where all those who have trusted in Christ will live with him forever and ever in eternity. Well, 
that was a whole lot. I wasn't sure if we were going to get through it. I know that, again, we just rushed through that. I, I hope we didn't go too fast. Um, I'm sure we could spend uh, a lot more time on each of those doctrines. And maybe in the, in the days ahead, we'll uh, have a series on each of those doctrines where we can dive much deeper. There's a lot to cover. But like I said at the beginning, this is a series that we just want to kind of give a nice overview for those who aren't familiar with Christianity, but would like to get a better understanding of what we believe and how uh, the Christian church has developed over the years. And for those who maybe have been Christians for a while, but maybe they haven't uh, necessarily heard some of these teachings uh, um, um, addressed in a specific way. So I hope this has been a blessing for you. Now, next week, uh, we're going to examine some of the important uh, disciplines or practices that have been a part of Christianity throughout its history. Uh, we're going to be covering things like uh, reading scripture, prayer, fasting, church attendance, tithing, uh, sharing your faith, and all sorts of other things that Christians have been encouraged to do uh, throughout church history. And so I hope you'll continue uh, to enjoy this series with us and learn from it and grow from it, and that God will bless you uh, as we move forward. So until next time, I hope you all take care, and God bless.